You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. I have to tell you, this passage is um, it's a heavy one. It's a heavy one this morning. You know, we, as we've followed the thread of worship through the book of Isaiah uh, th- this summer, today we land on Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is the prophecy of the cross. And it is a, uh, it's a, it's a big deal. So I, 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 I need to start this message with a disclaimer because there's really no way I will be able to do it justice. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to bring this message to life for you this morning because it's a, it's a big one. And it's revolutionary. It was revolutionary when it was written nearly three millennia ago, and it's still revolutionary today. So much so, in fact, that Orthodox Jews don't read this pass don't read this passage. There is a Sabbath reading plan that they follow all year long, and when they get to where Isaiah 53 should be, they just skip over it. It goes 51, 52, 54. So for me, it's it's kind of heartbreaking when anyone can't see Jesus in the Word. Um, it's just sad when folks can't connect to the Lord in, in the Word. So with things being as they are, I'm not going to try to teach this passage, and if you know me, that's my thing. I like to just pick it apart and find all the goody in it and then share everything that I discover or that the Lord shows me. Um, but, but that's not this kind of message this morning. Instead, I want to help you connect with this passage. I want to help you connect with Jesus as we see him in Isaiah 53. Because in all of scripture, this passage gives us one of the clearest pictures of the person and the work of Christ. Isaiah shows us the person of Christ as servant and the work of Christ as a redeemer who who suffered and died on our behalf. And it's a pretty remarkable passage and just 13 verses, uh, Isaiah gives us a deep look at the, at the true depth of Jesus' character. So here's what we're going to do. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and listen and just sort of create space to allow the Holy Spirit to work as you listen to this passage. I'll read the first nine verses. Let the Holy Spirit give you an image or a thought or revelation about Christ as you listen to the words. Then you'll have an opportunity to share what the Holy Spirit revealed to you. Then once you have shared uh, what you have seen, I'll tell you what I see. Does that sound like a plan? All right, so let's get started. So go ahead, close your eyes. Take a deep breath, just kind of relax. Open up your mind, let the Holy Spirit in. And as you listen, I want you to imagine his face. Imagine his clothing. Imagine his expression. Imagine what it must have been like to be him and to experience the kind of life that he lived. Just imagine. 
Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So I'm going to give you just a moment with that. And let's listen again to verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Do you see him? Do you see Jesus? What is the Holy Spirit showing you this morning? Who would like to share? Yeah, so, for, so it's an awareness of what Christ gave up willingly, seeing his, the wounds in his hand and knowing he could have walked away but chose not to. That's good. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. Mm. So for Mike, it was the passage where Isaiah talks about Christ being silent before the shears, and a sheep doesn't have to do anything to produce wool. It's a natural outflow. So for Christ, it's a natural outflow of who he is in relation to God the Father, right? Yeah. Who else? You see him walking in... <laughs> that's perfect that's interesting because I use that very phrase in my message so that's, that's the Holy Spirit I mean it's all the Holy Spirit but that, I use that, that phrase later in the message so that's good that, that's confirmation for me thank you <laughs> anyone else? Yeah. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit revealed to you that Jesus was a simple man. And he wants us to come to him simply as we are. We can be used as we are. That's good. Amen. So for you, it was uh, a weary but hopeful face and how he could have easily blend in with the crowd with anyone. He didn't stand out. He didn't draw attention to himself. He was just Jesus. That's good. That's good. So can I tell y'all what I saw? Okay. So I saw a man who looked, he looked more like a beggar than a king. I saw a man who was ragged. He was weathered and worn from a hard life. To look at him, you never would have known the privilege that he was born into. He just looked like a regular person. But his face, it would have been the most beautiful face I had ever seen had it not been for the pain etched in his brow. The beauty of his features was hidden under a mask of deep sorrow. I saw a man who knew what it meant to suffer ridicule, injustice, and abuse. A man who longed to be loved and accepted, but was despised and rejected instead. I knew a man who knew what it felt like. I saw a man who knew what it felt like to be left alone at the very moment he needed his community the most. And his heart was broken. I could tell it by the way he held his body. He carried himself as if he were carrying the weight of the whole world on his shoulders. In verse 3, Isaiah says that he was despised and rejected, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, from whom we would hide our faces, a person from whom we would hide our faces. So what does that sound like? Think about that for a minute. You know, like maybe the person on the street corner, 
holding a sign asking for help. You know the one that I mean. It's the person we're afraid to look at because to look into their eyes is to acknowledge their tragedy. And we know that no matter what we do, it will never be enough. Their tragedy will go on and all of our spare change can't fix that. And if we're honest, sometimes our spare change is all we're really willing to give. So we'd rather look the other way, and we do. We turn away and we carry off only our own burdens along with the one extra we just added by ignoring the need. And that one extra burden really only serves to create distance, not only between us and that other person, but between us and God as well. Now we know we are neither called or equipped to meet every human need. Only one person, only one, Jesus, fits that description. However, our lives are still full of those street corner moments, right? Not just the literal ones. I mean, all of those seemingly insignificant missed opportunities to simply be present in another person's life. All those moments where we hear the still, small voice of God urging us into action, but we decide to walk away instead. So imagine, after a course of a lifetime, maybe hundreds, maybe even thousands of those street corner moments, how much space we might find between ourselves and the Savior. Before you know it, we could easily slip into something that John Wesley calls nominal Christianity. You know, it's that we just put on our fireproof clothes and, you know, go about our day. But that's not what we're called to. And Jesus, he had his own street corner moment. He kind of lived a street corner life. He, he sort of camped out at the intersection of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, Right? And he was the one holding the sign. But the difference is, the sign he held read, King of the Jews. And instead of holding his hand out to receive, he spread his arms wide to give his all for us. He's our Savior. He deserves more than our spare change and our extra time and whatever's left over, you know? As Jesus, he died not to create space, but to close the gap. He died to close the gap between us and God and between us and each other. And to acknowledge his tragedy is to acknowledge our own tragedy. Not only that, but to acknowledge his tragedy is to acknowledge his victory and our victory in him. Amen. Just listen to the rest of this passage. Starting at verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So he goes from being cut off from the land of the living to seeing his offspring and having his days prolonged. That's victory. God turns it around. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, 
And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many and made intercessions for the transgressors. <coughs> My friends, our allegiance to him is more than enough. So who we see in this passage is a man who knew what lay ahead, but also knew, was, knew what was at stake. And he chose to press on, no matter what the cost. We see Jesus, our King, fully human and fully divine. The Lord of the universe, my Lord and your Lord. Vulnerable in his humanity and glorious in his divinity. We see God the Son intent on only one thing. Fulfilling the will of the Father. Loving us preserving our lives, saving our souls. We see the one, the only one, worthy of worship. It's a lot to take in, isn't it? That this suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is Jesus, the same Jesus that John writes about in his gospel when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the word, the word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing, has, nothing was made that has been made. It, he's King Jesus, the agent of creation. It's one of the greatest paradoxes of our faith. The creator of all things seen and unseen, the one to whom all worship rightly belongs, became a lowly servant to accomplish our salvation. How do we wrap our minds around that? Even those who witness his life firsthand had trouble with that, which is a huge part of why Jesus was despised and rejected when he walked this earth. Has anyone been watching the Chosen series lately? Yes. Oh. I'm so sorry. I thought you were praising God back there. <laughs> so tell me your experience, please. Well. Oh, wow. Praise God. Did y'all hear? He saw God falling, and he reached out, and as he reached out for God, God just fell gracefully back and winked at him as he went. Is that right? Yes, Praise God. Praise God. Thank you for sharing, and thank you for, your, thank you for not giving up. And forgive me for... <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Amen. All right. So the cho that was good. That was good. Praise God. All right, so the Chosen series. So if, you might, if you've been watching it, then you might remember that in season one, Peter gets himself into a little bit of trouble, right? He, had, <laughs> yeah. he, he finds himself in debt to Rome, and the Romans are threatening to throw him in prison, take his house, take his boat. And then on top of all that, his mother-in-law's sick. And she's just come to stay in the house with him. 
So after all of his, and you know, and so Peter kind of gets creative. He tries to come up with these schemes to make money quick, just to try to get himself out of trouble, right? But it all fails, every bit of it. So finally, Peter gives up and decides he's going to go fishing. So in episode four of season one, there's this scene. And Peter, he's gathering his nets to head out to go fishing when Andrew comes flying around the corner. And he's all excited and he stops in front of, front of Peter and he's out of breath. And he says, it's happened, it's happened, we're saved. I've seen him with my own eyes, Peter. Or Simon, he calls him Simon. And Simon, a little bit frustrated, says, who? Who did you see, Andrew? And Andrew says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But Andrew, so Andrew, he sees the Isaiah 53 Savior, right? But Peter, he's not hearing any of it. So he just sort of keeps on about his business. And Andrew can't figure out why Peter doesn't seem to care at all. He's just seen the Savior. Then Peter finally asks him, was he a big man, Andrew? Was he rich? Is he going to bail us out of this debt to Rome? Was he a doctor? Is he going to help with Eden's mom? No? Well, then pardon me for not flying out of my sandals. <laughs> and we get it right. When we're at our worst, when we face our most difficult seasons in life, we want a Savior who's going to drop a bag of money in our laps. Huh? One that's going to save our house, heal our mamas, fix our country. That's what we're looking for, a way out. But what we need is a way through. Because in our darkest, most desperate moments, our souls aren't even on the radar, are they? And not only that, but neither are our souls on the radar when we're at our best. When we are most aware that we are blessed and highly favored, it is those moments we can forget. Are easy, it's easiest to forget that we need a Savior. But what if we could take all of our secret thoughts and desires... You know the ones, all the ones that are fueled by the f every little frustration and fear that we face every day. So what if we could take all of those secret thoughts and desires and cast them on a screen like a movie? What would your movie be rated? Would it be a movie we'd want to sit down with Jesus and watch? Not my movie. And that's why Jesus came. That's why. Not to give us a way out of trouble, but to make a way through it. Not to save us from the world, but to save us from ourselves and from the enemy of our souls. And Jesus, he's not codependent. He will not do for us that which we can and should do for ourselves. He didn't come to solve all of our practical problems. He came to solve our spiritual ones. He came to heal our hearts and make us worthy of the kingdom. He came to reconcile us to God, and in him, we have all we need to thrive in the midst of our worst troubles. But we all know how hard it is to get our eyes off our circumstances when we're suffering, don't we? It is hard. During our worst moments, Pain and confusion are all we see. It's all we understand. It can be overwhelming. 
So buried by our worries, we do what we can to get by, and we simply forget what it means to fully worship God. I mean, we find it easy to worship John's Jesus, right? The creator Jesus. I think most Sundays, that's who we come here to see. But how can we possibly wor worship the creator fully if we only know one part of who he is? So who is this suffering servant that I, Isaiah teaches us about? What makes him worthy of our worship? Now we know all of the right answers, don't we? We know that in Christ, the eternal stepped into time. We know that in Christ, the most high became the lowly one. We know that in him, the first became the last and that Christ died that we may live and he was condemned that we might be justified he stooped low so that we might be lifted high. All of that is true. And all of that is in the character of his divinity. But what about his humanity? What is it in the character of God's humanity, the suffering servant, that makes him worthy of worship? And Isaiah has a bit to teach us about that. But first, we need to keep in mind that this prophecy was written 800 years before Christ was even born. So to fully understand the servanthood of Christ, we need to step into Isaiah's world for a minute. In Isaiah's world, according to Torah, that's the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, an Israelite who fell into debt could indenture himself as a servant to a fellow Israelite. And he could work for a period of time, usually about six years, and after that period of time was up, the servant would be released. However, they could then choose to stay in their, the, their master's service. And this happened sometimes, usually out of gratitude. They were treated well, and they did it out of love and gratitude for their master. And they would get like a, like a dowel, like an earring type mark, so that everyone who looked at them would know that they were a willing servant. So the picture that Isaiah paints here of Jesus is the picture of a willing servant. Someone who had willingly set aside their own goals, their own dreams, their own agenda, and traded their own will for the will of the master. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus tells his disciples that his food is to do the will of God. His food is to do the will of God and to finish his work. In 5.30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. And in John 6.38 and 39, Jesus says he's come down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. And it's the Father's will that none shall be lost. The Father's will is the eternal salvation of his people. In Christ... God came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark chapter 10. Jesus' whole life was connected so deeply to the Father that he considered God's will his food. He couldn't live apart from it. And Isaiah 53 tells us he served and he suffered for people who despised and rejected him. And listen, we can believe in God and still reject Jesus. We kind of do it in the half-hearted way we live our lives sometimes. 
We do it when we offer him our allegiance, but we withhold our hearts. We keep a little piece of ourselves for us. I'll give you a perfect example. When, when I lived in active addiction, I acknowledged the existence of God. I even claimed to be a Christian, but my life told a very different story because I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know Jesus of the gospel. I knew about John's creator, Jesus, but I didn't know anything about the Savior who died for me. Guess what? John's Jesus and Isaiah's Jesus are the same Jesus. And Jesus, he came to save us from troubles we brought on ourselves. Isaiah says, Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That's verses 5 and 6. He made intercessions for us and made a way for us to encounter the Father. He made a way through. And for that, he's worthy of our worship. We serve a God who not only carried our pain and took our punishment, but knows our pain, felt our pain. He understands what it feels like to be in the pit of despair. Jesus knows. He took everything life threw at him and did not waver in his passion and purpose. He felt every human emotion. Love, joy, pain, disappointment, anxiety, even fear. Jesus knows how it feels when we watch the people we love spin out of control, heading down a path that leads only to death. He knows. He's done it. He does it. He knows what it's like to be treated unfairly, to be hurt deeply, to be looked down upon, to be rejected and disrespected. He knows what it's like not to be taken seriously, to be forgotten to be ignored, and he faced it all in humility and grace. And in that humility and grace rests his glory. We can't let the extreme suffering and tragedy of his death overshadow the glory in it or the meaning of it all. His glory, let me tell you about his glory. The glory in Christ's sacrifice is a joyful invitation into the life of the Trinity. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's an invitation to join the team, to be part of the family, to take your place in something that is so much bigger than any one of us could ever imagine. It's a welcome into the divine mystery. The suffering Christ experienced for us extends a personal invitation to join in his victory. He is worthy of our worship. And what makes his sacrifice so powerful is found in Isaiah 53. Do you remember we talked about it earlier? God the Son came as a willing servant to God the Father. His death on the cross was a death he willingly chose. And what makes his sacrifice enough is that Jesus was and is perfect and sinless in his humanity. And he is glorious in his divinity. He was a worthy sacrifice and is worthy of worship. So here's what that means for us. I'll pull it together. By God's brilliant design, 
We have a Savior who in his humanity can relate to us in our humanity. A Savior who, though he had the will and the power of his own to walk away from death on the cross, chose instead to serve the will of the Father and submit to death. And by submitting to death, he overcame the power of death in resurrection. And in so doing, Jesus made a way through this life, not a way out of it, but a way for us to be free of the power of sin and death by the power of the Holy Spirit as we're reconciled to God by his sacrifice. And now, Jesus has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty where he shall judge the living and the dead. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he has provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. He is worthy of worship by man and by angels. And Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 18 through 21. I'm in Galatians. Oh, sorry about that, y'all. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for those, for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, by the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We worship an enthroned Savior. And there is an old hymn that says it best. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adores the mighty victor's brow. The highest place that heaven affords is by his sovereign right. The king of kings, the lord of lords, and heaven's eternal light. He is worthy of worship because he grieves with us the condition of the world around us and he comforts us in our time of need. He's worthy of worship because he holds love in his heart for those that we love. And when we finally let go and realize that we can't do any real saving, not for ourselves or anyone else, he's ready to step in and do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus will never, ever let go. He's worthy of worship because when we have come to the end of ourselves and we can't find a way out of it, whatever it is, he will be there. We will always find him there to show us the way through. He's worthy of worship because he takes drug addicts off the street and puts them in the pulpit. He's worthy of worship because he draws alcoholics out of their bottle and renews their spirit 
and purpose. He changes hearts and redeems lives, and he is worthy of our worship. So we're going to enter into a time of prayer, and I want to invite you to remember the joy of your salvation. I know that this is heavy, heavy stuff. But on the other side of it is joy. This leads to joy. It is joy. It is new life. It's resurrection for all of us, for our spirits, for our lives, for our souls, for our family, everything. So I want to encourage you to find the joy in your salvation. Remember the joy in your salvation this morning. And I want to invite you also to pray. Maybe there's a thing that you have been looking for a way out of, but really what you need is a way through it. If that's you, I'd love to pray for you, and I'll be right over here. Maybe you would like to pray for friends or family, just that the Lord would reveal to them in a special way himself. I want to invite you to pray. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.